special episode of Net Zero. Today, we take a broad view on how legislation and policy are enabling the energy transition in Europe. We question where they are falling short of Europe's ambition to be at the forefront of climate action. And we seek to understand how green Europe's economic recovery will be in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's start with legislation. In June 2019, the Clean Energy for All Europeans package was published, setting the legal framework for energy markets in Europe, with a focus on consumers and accelerating decarbonisation. Some critics have said it left too much leeway for member countries to decide how far they would go. We sat down with Leonardo Meusch, professor at the Florence School of Regulation and Vleric Business School, to explore the key impacts of this new set of rules for energy markets. Yeah, so I think this package does many things in one big package. Eh? It's uh... Before it was officially called the Clean Energy Package, lots of nicknames circulated and some of them were jumbo package. So it's really hard to, you know, to cover everything that is in there. If I were to highlight just one thing um, that is really new, um, it would be the, the, you know, the, the slogan that is more than a slogan, you know, putting the citizen at the center of the energy transition. I think this package really goes a long way in doing that. But as you say, I do agree that those elements are exactly that new paradigm, you could say, has been expressed through articles in the directive of that package, the e-directive, the market directive. And indeed, a lot of the elements that are in there that I think are very progressive and and really innovative still put member states in the lead. Uh, You can read in many of those articles, member states shall develop a regulatory framework for this and that. So it's true that in the first instance, it will be member states. But I think it's quite innovative that if you look at the topics, so what are we talking about? Um, A lot of it is DSO related, flexibility related, aggregators, dynamic retail prices, smart meters, all these elements that I think we really need um, to engage uh, customers, to engage consumers are in there. And yes, member states uh, will develop it, but the fact that they will have to do something and they will have to develop these regulatory frameworks, I think, is a big step forward. And, you know, I already referred to network codes and guidelines. Um, it's maybe less known, but we will have a second generation of network codes and guidelines. So a lot of these elements that in principle will be done by member states could come back in a more formal European harmonization approach through a second generation of of codes and guidelines. Um, Mm -hmm. So again, maybe uh, I'm a bit more positive than these critics you refer to. After this new legislative package in early 2020, Asla van der Leyen presented the European Green Deal, a bold policy manifesto aimed at making Europe climate neutral by 2050. This was followed by the Green Deal Investment Plan and proposals for the Just Transition Mechanism and a European Climate Law. Net Zero spoke to Georg Zachmann, Senior Fellow at Bruegel, to get a better grasp on the implications and challenges of the Green Deal. In summer, Ursula von der Leyen came out with the political guidelines of uh, her commission, so what she wants to, uh, to achieve in the coming five years. 
And one of the major building blocks of that has indeed been this European Green Deal. And you already mentioned one of the key elements that's making Europe climate neutral by the middle of the century. So that's in terms of targets. And she also set an intermediate target. Just, uh, she said that she wants to achieve at least 50% decarbonization by 2030 compared to 40%, uh, which were initially envisaged. So an increase, uh, substantial uh, increase in ambition of the, um, of the 2030 targets. On top of that, um, she also talked about measures that she wants to, uh, to use to uh, achieve these higher ambition. And uh, I would like to, to highlight three of them. The first one is on, on carbon pricing. On carbon pricing, she is essentially saying that she wants to extend the European emission trading system to all sectors so that all carbon that is emitted in Europe is essentially falling under the system and is having a price and that uh, she does not want to let our industry leave Europe because of high carbon prices. She wants to introduce a so-called carbon border tax or carbon border adjustment, which people that want to sell carbon intensive good to the European Union would have to pay. Um, second, uh, or, uh, a second policy that, uh, uh, that she announced early on was a just transition fund. And here, the idea is that decarbonization will have substantial social implications. So she was saying one element that we that we need to make sure is that the, uh, the uh, people that will have most to lose are being somewhat compensated. So a European Just Transition Fund is going to be set up. And finally, uh, in terms of financing the transition, uh, she promised to make the EIB into a European climate bank. So. That's, in my view, the, uh, the four main elements of her political guidelines, which were also reflected in the mission letters that she gave to the individual commissioners that, uh, that she proposed to the parliament. In May 2020, in the wake of COVID-19 and its halting of European economies, the Commission set out a recovery plan for Europe, with climate action and energy playing a central role. This is what Dieter Juhl Jorgensen, Director General for Energy, had to say on the role of the Green Deal in supporting Europe's economic recovery. From the beginning of this Commission mandate, President Ursula von der Leyen has made it very clear that the European Green Deal, making Europe climate neutral by 2050, is the priority of the European Union now and of the European Commission now. And that means putting the fight against climate change at the center of the agenda and involving all different policy instruments and areas to help uh, achieve that. Um, it means, uh, for example, in the, uh, in the field of environment, uh, to address biodiversity loss, we are looking at the circular economy, we have a new industrial strategy. And then, of course, there is an important role for energy policy um, by the fact, in particular, that energy represents about 75% of European greenhouse gas emissions, either by production or by consumption. So in other words, to become climate neutral by 2050, we need to address energy and we need to make good use of our energy policy instruments. Now, this Green Deal um, has, is also a, a growth strategy uh, in itself. How do we grow uh, from the green transition? How do we make use of, how do we strengthen European competitiveness? How do we build a European um, resilient and competitive industry also in clean and green technologies to help this transition? 
Um, and so in that sense, the Green Deal is also a very useful uh, foundation and starting point for the recovery that we are now uh, uh, engaging in. Uh, and the Green Deal, as you also said, is placed uh, centrally um, in that. But what are the specific objectives, actions and financing mechanisms of this economic recovery package? The Director General for Energy discusses. In concrete terms, the package has two key elements. First of all, there is the emergency next generation EU instrument of 750 billion, uh, which aims to boost the financial firepower for, of the EU budget with funds raised on financial markets. And um, that will be channeled through EU programs to underpin immediate measures um, to protect livelihoods, get the economy going, foster uh, sustainable and resilient growth and help bring about uh, investments. The second part is the larger part of the package, and that's the reinforced multi-annual financial framework for 2021-27. This was already proposed earlier, but now there is a revision to that to take into account the changed circumstances. And again, here, the aim is to channel investment where it's needed the most to do that quickly, to reinforce the European single market, step up cooperation in areas around health and crisis management, which have not had much attention previously, and of course equip the European Union with a long-term budget to drive green and digital transition to build a fairer and more resilient economy in the European Union. These different elements together, uh, together with the measures already adopted in the, in the April European Council, um, provide uh, together a 1.85 trillion of targeted and front-loading support to Europe's recovery. So those are the amounts that also a bit about how they're framed and what is the what is what are the overall objectives of these important recovery instruments and financial mechanisms to to bring us there. So that is the overall European framework for a green transition and economic recovery. But what about the private sector? It is expected that corporations and households will be responsible for the vast majority of the investment needed in the energy transition. The European Commission needs to mobilize significant investment from the private sector, while at the same time redirecting financing to green activities. We asked Georg Zachmann how he saw this happening, and in particular, what would be the role of the European Investment Bank? As you, as you say, the, uh, the private sector will shoulder most of the, of the decarbonization investment needed. And here, I do not believe that finance is the, uh, is the main and, and only bottleneck. So it's not only about cheap loans to uh, especially companies. Companies currently can get money at, uh, at very low cost in the, in the um, financial markets. Um, so the, uh, the crucial element of getting the right private investments into decarbonization is incentives. And we spoke at the beginning of carbon prices, and I think that's, the, that's always the core element that, uh, that you would hear an economist argue for. So we really need to, to get our house in order in terms of having a substantial carbon price in each sector in order to give private investors the right signal not to invest in uh, in brown infrastructure, but in green infrastructure. Beyond that, we obviously have other policy tools that we that we need to incentivize private investors with. There are standards, and we uh, we use them, for example, for for cars and uh, and housing. Uh, we, we should be careful in the in the way we we do that so that it's efficient, but uh, if rightly implemented, 
that uh, that has a significant role in in steering investments in the in the right direction, and we also have subsidies that um, support systems like uh, renewable support systems, and here obviously it's um, important that those rules are set at the European level in order to protect the integrity of the internal market. We had this discussion already uh, more than 10 years ago on the European level, for example, for the support of renewable energy. And without the European rules on and targets on renewable energy, it would have been quite difficult for member states to deploy the, the corresponding support schemes because they would have been at risk of um, uh, of action, of state aid action, for example, by DG competition. So European rules are also important to, to shield the individual member states from, uh, from, from specific rules of, uh, for example, the, uh, the state aid guidelines need to be adjusted in a way that member states are able to, to set out incentive schemes for, uh, for certain decarbonization investment support systems. And um, so, so therefore, my my main message here is we uh, we need to get the uh, the incentives right. Just tinkering with the financial system and and trying to reduce capital cost by a, uh, by zero point two zero point three percentage points is not going to uh, to get us the decarbonization that we uh, that we need. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless capital cost play a role because a lot of decarbonization is based on things that you pay for upfront and with which you save over the life cycle of the project. If you, for example, invest in a wind turbine, you pay for it and then it's producing electricity for the, for the coming 20, 30, 40 years without much additional cost. If you invest in a coal-fired power plant, you, you, you build the plant for maybe half of the money or less and the remaining cost will, will only be the coal that you burn over the coming years. So for uh, so the capital costs play a very important role in deciding whether to build a coal plant or a renewable installation. And here, as you as you rightfully said, the the European Investment Bank can come in as an as an important element. It's it's actually more differentiated than that because in some member states capital costs are already negative essentially like uh, like germany for example while in other right. member states think bulgaria capital costs are significantly higher and here i think the european investment bank might have a substantial role in helping to finance uh, low carbon investments or reduce the capital cost of low carbon investments, especially in those member states that that have higher capital costs, because we don't want to have all the wind turbines only standing in Germany. But I think it's important that uh, that there is some sort of, uh, of homogeneity of that in the, in the European context. Some important messages there on how to best bring private investment on board. Let's turn our attention now back to policy. We asked Dieter Juhl Jorgensen, what are the key energy policy initiatives driving the green recovery? There are three aspects I would mention. One is building renovations. The second is the rollout and the scaling up of renewable energy uh, generation or renewable electricity generation. And the third is energy system uh, integration, which is uh, another important uh, policy initiative that we are working on. Now, first, building renovation. We um, are scheduled to... Uh, present a renovation wave initiative after the summer, hopefully uh, in at the end of September. 
uh, which will aim to address the obstacles that we see in the area of building renovation. The reason we do that is, of course, energy efficiency. The European building mass um, is, not particularly, is not particularly energy efficient and it consumes significant amounts of energy and represents a very important share of our greenhouse gas emissions. So if we can renovate our building stock, both private building housing, but also public building schools, hospital, public administrations, we can bring down our energy consumption significantly and also decrease the, uh, the level of greenhouse gas emissions from buildings. So we have here an initiative that can have a real impact, both economically, but also in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And it's also a sector, the renovation sector is also a sector that is labor intensive and, and one that would typically engage local companies across all member states and across uh, all regions uh, in member states. So one, uh, an initiative that is well placed uh, to also bring convergence and, and a fair and sustainable uh, recovery of the European Union uh, throughout. So we're looking at what are the barriers to renovation? What are the barriers that we can help address at European level? Uh, how do we bring investment uh, to, to the sector of renovation? How do we make sure that we have the right regulation in place to boost uh, this uh, renovation wave? Um, it also links into, I said, the labor market, there's significant uh, employment opportunities and therefore it also links into the European skills agenda which will be uh, launched in July um, to um, to improve skills because we do need specialized skills in the renovation sector and in particular from an energy efficiency uh, perspective. So that uh, initiative is one of the key pillars of the energy side of recovery, one that can bring about investment, uh, growth, employment and hopefully also boost European competitiveness and resilience in these important sectors, both renovation itself, but also uh, the green technologies that are related to uh, energy efficiency of, uh, of buildings. The second pillar that I would want to mention of energy policy and recovery, as I said, is that of uh, renewables, scaling up of renewable uh, generation capacity in Europe. Um, most of what is already there um, is, uh, is, uh, is renewable um, and already has considerable support from the European budget um, and the European Investment Bank. So there are some instruments already available uh, and being put to good use. Um, this is emphasized further with the future loan guarantee scheme InvestEU. It replaces the current EFSI, um, which will help uh, create further investment opportunities, further funding opportunities, also in the renewable sector. Um, in addition to the renewable generation sector, we are looking also at the renewable industrial ecosystem. So the value chains, um, because this is part of one of, this is considered one of the strategic value chains that will be relevant for the, both for the green transition, but again, also for the resilience of the European uh, economy. And what we have seen during the crisis is that some of the manufacturing value chain, some of the renewable and, um, ecosystem has come under pressure because of the, of, the, of the global nature of the crisis. And so we need to look at what is the best, what is the best uh, way to make that more resilient for, uh, for the future to ensure we have both the manufacturing, uh, but also everything that is related to, to generation um, uh, of, the, of renewable energy. Um, linked to this, we are working on an offshore renewable energy strategy, which should come out uh, towards the end of this year. 
where we look at what, what do we need to do, what are the measures that should be taken both at European level, but of course also at, at national levels, for us to generally scale up uh, significantly uh, renewable uh, uh, energy offshore. Because to get to the scale that is needed to become climate neutral in, uh, in 2050 and to lower our, uh, our emissions by 2030 as, as envisaged, we need to scale up significantly the renewable energy uh, uh, generation. Uh, and to sc that scale can best be achieved uh, offshore. So our strategy looks at that. Um, and includes uh, a number of different actions to, to get there. The third point I wanted to mention is the energy system integration strategy and, and the hydrogen strategy that will accompany the energy system integration strategy. Energy system uh, integration is also referred to as sector integration, is um, an approach that looks at the energy system as a whole and that makes better use of all the different elements that are there. Instead of looking at electricity and gas, we look also at the link between electricity and gas sectors. We look at storage, we look at heating and cooling, we look at energy efficiency, we look at waste, all the, and we look at all the industrial components to see, well, how can we, if we link the system together, how can we make better use of the different components to limit the waste, to become more energy efficient, um, and to decarbonize uh, all sectors of the economy. Hydrogen is expected to play a role in particular in relation to sectors that are otherwise hard to decarbonize. So there are some industrial sectors, some energy intensive industrial sectors where companies are currently looking at hydrogen as a potential way to, to decarbonize. Um, and that's one of the things that we are picking up in, in our hydrogen strategy, which is scheduled for adoption uh, sometime uh, before the summer. So bringing together different sectors of the economy, different energy sources, different um, uh, aspects of, uh, of energy uh, with both transport and industry, agriculture, but of course also a better grid interconnections and more digitalization of the, of the energy sector. As the Director General says, energy system integration is at the core of Europe's green recovery and hydrogen an emerging priority. Here's Leonardo Meo's perspective on the difference between system integration and sector coupling and the regulatory interventions required to enable these. The idea is that sector coupling refers with power to gas, the connection between the gas sector and the electricity sector, while integration refers to the decarbonization and potentially electrification of the transport sector with electric vehicles and of the heat sector with heat pumps. And then the fact that these two sectors uh, would also be connected, right? More and more mm -hmm. to the electricity sector. Okay. And then to say a bit more maybe about regulatory interventions we can expect, I think it will be again about clarifying roles and responsibilities uh, within these new ecosystems. So, you know, shedding some light on the gray areas, let's say, of, of regulation. We also wanted to know his views on the role of hydrogen as a key driver for decarbonizing the energy system. Well, another way of, of um, you know, looking at your question is, uh, will the future be full electric or not, basically? Mm -hmm. um, and I mentioned it shortly, so people say, you know, probably not because we might need some 
other form of seasonal storage or bulk transport. Uh, we might not be able to develop enough electricity grids to 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 transport all energy. Uh, it would be too much. Right? We already face today public acceptance issues with some transmission lines, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that that's one way of looking at it. But whether these alternative energy carriers uh, will be hydrogen or something else that's another issue i think today that's very hard to to say others argue it will be uh, methanol or it will be synthetic methane or uh, today i think uh, it's important to keep all the options open and i think it's also a bit healthy that there are alternatives to electricity uh, it's good to have some competition among energy carriers i would say uh, to avoid that uh, it, it, yeah, we, everything depends on electricity only. The path to climate neutrality and economic recovery in Europe is an ambitious one and full of challenges. One of the major ones is public acceptance and equality across member states and income brackets of the population. To close today's special episode, we ask Georg Zachmann what are the mechanisms that the EU should put in place to make the transition inclusive and just. Maybe two elements here. The, the first element is in terms of, um, uh, of regions. Um, my, my colleague Simone Tagliapietra did, uh, did a very nice study uh, last year on um, the coal addiction of Europe and, uh, and what implication that on a regional level would have to, uh, to reduce uh, coal uh, mining and uh, and uh, and coal firing in power plants and his main result was the effect is extremely local and it's much smaller than than most people think i think he came up with uh uh yeah no, I, I don't recall the numbers but with uh, surprisingly low numbers of uh, of employees being uh, being there and so the answer that he gave was yes let's use existing funds like the um, um, globalization adjustment fund or maybe set up new funds like the like the just transition fund to very specifically help those regions to uh, to develop new strengths and do not make it into a uh, into a uh, into an overblown and uh, disproportionate topic that it uh, that it actually is not the other element is that many climate policies have effects that are more burdensome on the uh, poorer part of the population than, than on richer parts of the population. Just think of, um, uh, think of a fossil fuel tax. Typically, uh, it, uh, the, the gasoline costs are a higher share in the, in the expenditures of, uh, uh, of, of lower income people than in the, in the overall expenditure of, uh, of very rich people because uh, for, for them it's only, only uh, tens of a percentage point. And we have to acknowledge that introducing strong, uh, strong climate policies, if we do not mitigate the effect, um, can lead to increasing inequality. And uh, I've done a book with colleagues on that uh, a year ago, and the result is this is not something that cannot be dealt with. In, in effect, you can essentially do three things. First, you can try to focus on sectors where that's less the case. So if you put a taxation on aviation, it is probably not hurting the, the poorest part of, uh, of the population. Uh, so maybe uh, do, do more on aviation. 
if you introduce uh, the second thing is uh, the the tool that you are using. So if you use, for example, an a carbon tax, it's it's maybe uh, less of a problem than if you introduce an, a very tight standard because a tight standard might mean that the poor household would not at able uh, not at all be able to drive a car because he cannot afford a Tesla, while uh, a rich household would be would be able to do that uh, with a tax. The poor people a poor person can still decide to to drive less. And the third element is it's extremely important how you design the policy. And we have seen that with the emission trading system, how many billions of euros essentially went from the pockets of, uh, of final consumers to uh, uh, to the owners of, uh, of industrial installations. So what I'm saying here is what the European Commission should definitely do is clear impact assessments on the distributional effects of all policy proposals and the European Parliament should closely look into whether there are not alternatives that have the same climate implications or decarbonization implications than, uh, than the proposed policy, but significantly lower distributional effects. And I think if one studies this carefully and pays attention on that, uh, one will be surprised how easy it will be to, uh, to, uh, to have climate policies with significantly lower distributional effects. Many thanks to Leonardo Meusch, Georg Sachmann and Dieter Yule Jorgensen for their time and contributions. I hope you enjoyed listening to this special episode of Net Zero. Stay tuned for more on climate change and the energy transition. <music>